All right. Hello. Welcome to another episode of I Love Rock and Roll. I'm one of your hosts, Ken Krantz. And I'm Chip the Fox Chantry. (laughs) I've already forgot about that. Yeah. We were like, Uh, we're going to do that every week. Viper and the Fox. That's what we were given the name. So we're going to take that morning radio show host, Viper and the Fox. uh, (laughs) You want to introduce our guest, Chip? I do. Uh, this uh, this week's guest is a very funny gentleman, a stand-up comedian hailing from the great city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, he's a winner of the Philly's Funniest Contest at, at, at Helium Comedy Club mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. He tours the country nationally doing his stand-up comedy routines. He's got a great album that was released last year called Kidnapping Season. And he's also the brains behind the very funny YouTube series, How to Drive in Philadelphia. Did I get that right? How to drive in yes. Philly? Yes. How to drive in Philly. And another one of my former roommates, uh, the one and only David James. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello. This is a Thank very you, specific podcast where we just talk music with people that used to live with Chip. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we actually still have a handful of comedians left to go. So we have, uh, yeah, we have a number of guests coming up that have all shared my domicile there's also several cellmates that um don't have access to the internet so you know once they get paroled once they get paroled then it's just going to be a slew of guests yeah uh how are you kenneth i'm doing great we are talking about uh, one of my favorite singers of all time i'm really excited to do this one uh we're talking about the king of soul otis redding Mm -hmm. otis redding Uh, are david are you a fan um, I'm a fan of Otis Redding, um, mainly because I don't understand how he was 27 and he looked like he was at least 47. Okay, well, that's one of the yeah. things I want to talk about right off the bat. Yes. Not only does he look like that, but just being a child listening to "Sitting on the Dock of the Bay," of course, is like you know most famous song. Like you just picture, I mean that that is a 60 year old man who's singing that song. Yeah, I mean just from that mm-hmm. perspective, that's what he sounds like, and that's what he does look like. I mean, he like he just he, like he has a haircut. Like I think it's a bit of the haircut. It's it's mm-hmm. he's. I think it's the haircut of a middle aged man. Like he looks like he has the haircut of like a defensive lineman from uh, the nineteen eighty nine <laughs> Eagles roster. Like that. That's kind of the, the look he's going for. Uh, but yeah, no, he's that. That is a crazy thing because he uh, not to. Spoiler alert, everybody. Uh, he was killed in a in a plane crash when he was 26 years. He was 26 Wait, years old. He's he, I had just started comedy. Basically, he's at that dead. Point. I oh, did not God. finish reading Wikipedia. You're telling me oh, Otis Redding guys. died in a plane crash. Oh, I am so, oh, oh no. I'm so sorry to spoil this. Oh, fuck. Oh, OK. Uh, OK, we'll just forget. We'll edit that out. We'll edit that out. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll start over. So uh, we are talking this week about the very live Otis Redding. And uh, yeah, so uh, we'll start out with a, just a quick history of his background. Uh, Ken and I were actually talking about this since he only lived to 26. Uh, and th- there really isn't a whole lot. There's not that many interviews with him. And there's not a lot of information about his childhood. Uh, there was a book written a couple of years ago. Uh, there's been sort of some biographies and uh, some documentaries about him, but not a whole lot about his his younger years. So there's not a lot out there, but he was born Otis Ray Redding Jr., on September 9th, 1941, he was the fourth of six kids. Uh, he was born in Dawson, Georgia. Uh, Otis Redding Sr. was a sharecropper, and he also worked 
worked at uh, Robbins Air Force Base, and he was sometimes a preacher. So he was also a part-time preacher. Uh, David, you're, you're a part-time preacher, correct? Yes, uh, according to my recent tax returns, yes. Right, right. Uh, so when he was uh, uh, just a couple years old, he moved to Macon, Georgia, and uh, that's when he was singing in the Vineville Baptist Church. From an early age, he learned guitar and piano. He learned drums. He learned how to sing throughout the church. On Sundays, he made $6, six big dollars on oh. a Sunday for singing gospels uh, for Macon's WIBB radio station. So that was like a good get for him. Uh, he His biggest influences, and we're going to get into these guys a little bit more and how they influenced him, but Little Richard and Sam Cooke, uh, Little Richard from Macon, Georgia, Little Richard and Sam Cooke were uh, his biggest inspirations. And you can definitely hear those in influences in his music. Uh, Little Richard, in fact, uh, inducted him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989, which I highly recommend anybody go to YouTube and watch Little Richard's induction of Otis Redding into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's one of the most batshit crazy speeches. I, it's not even a speech. He's like singing most of the time. He's yelling at people in the front row. He's doing crowd work. I It, it seems like he's coked <laughs> up. I don't want to cast aspersions, but... It was, it's amazing. It's one of the most entertaining things I've ever seen. I don't know the words, <laughs> but that good song, though. Otis Redding was born in Macon, Georgia. His father was a preacher, and Otis Redding was a preacher. And he was a great singer. I remember, I met Otis in New York. I didn't meet him in Macon. I gave him $50 at the Statler Hilton Hotel, and I autographed it for him. And, uh, I wanted him to come to the room, but he was scared to come in there with me by myself. I said, Otis, I need to talk to you. He said, I'll be back. So anyway, uh, when so he's very musical. When he was 15, his dad got tuberculosis. Uh, he, so he had to quit school to help, help support the family. Um, he was a well digger. He worked at a gas station. Uh, he was doing all this work, but he was also getting gigs while he was doing uh, doing that as a teenager. In 1958, uh, he met up with guitarist uh, Johnny Jenkins, who was a bit of a name uh, down south. Uh, and Johnny Jenkins actually has a big influence on rock. He, he kind of launched Otis's career. Uh, he, he also was a big influence on Hendrix, too. So Johnny Jenkins, big guitar player. He saw Otis at a talent show one night and was like this this kid's great uh i should start backing him so they started working together so johnny jenkins was on guitar otis was singing uh they won that uh talent contest 15 consecutive weeks winning a big prize of five dollars each week so uh so they won 15 consecutive weeks yeah uh, but that's, that's about fifty dollars now i was gonna say like we're we're laughing but he was making more money at those talent shows than we do doing spots oh yeah Absolutely. Abs mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, also around that time, I'm jumping around a little bit, but he met, uh, uh, I think it's uh, Zelma Atwood. Uh, he married her in 1961. They had four kids together uh, th throughout the years. By the way, wasn't she uh, 16 when they got married? 
Yeah, he she was like 15, I think, when they got together. He was like 18. Yeah. They had a baby at yeah. one point and then a couple I, months later got married. Right. Yeah. So they I think yeah. I think she was knocked up and pregnant by 17 then. Yeah. But yeah, it's it was, but it's and, the same and, and and married. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But it's yeah. like the same thing with how the five dollars was worth more. Like uh-huh. back then, 16, you were like you were like 30. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. It's, it's called it's David. It's called inflation. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> if you listen to our podcast, you'll learn about how the world works. It's called inflation. Well, you used to be able to get married back in the day at that young age. You know, and yeah. no one thought anything different about it. It's like, hey, you know what? Uh, you're about to be a sophomore in uh, high school and it's time to start planning a baby. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but yeah, I think like my, inst- I th- instead of like, you know how like in, in, in high school, sometimes like a health class, they make you like carry around a fake baby or like a like a bag of flour or something like that to, yeah. to teach you. They would actually make you have a real baby to teach you how mm-hmm. to take care of a baby. That was, yeah. it was, it was part of health class. That's how, that's how it worked <laughs> down South. Um, Pretty sure that's how it still works. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Shout so, out to Georgia. Um, uh, so Redding then was asked, like he, he becomes big in Georgia making Georgia and he becomes, Come, he, he gets asked to like front a bunch of different bands, which kind of jumps around from band to band. Uh, he, he first was asked to front the band Pat T. Cake, Pat T. Cake and the Mighty Panthers, which, OK, let's talk about <laughs> names of bands from the 60s. <laughs> Patty Cake and the Mighty Panthers. Like that's there's so much going on in that name, which I just I love. It's 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 so much fun. Like this bands need to step up their game these days, like with the punnery and just the the imagery. It's it's a lot of fun. Patty Cake and the Mighty Panthers. So um, he and Jenkins was also a part of that band. Uh, then Little Richard, of course, one of his heroes, Little Richard in, I guess, the late 50s, early 60s, he left rock and roll to pursue pursue a gospel career. So he's like found God. He's going gospel. He left his group, the Upsetters. And uh, Otis was asked to front take over for a little Richard as, as to front the upsetters. Well, so they toured um, the, uh, I'd say fun fact. Um, I think when little Richard went gospel, he was the original. I'm not gay no more. And that's why right. he did the gospel. He went full gospel because yeah. like, you remember the I'm not gay no more video guy. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like the, the real, little Richard was the original of that. And that's why yeah. he did the gospel thing and uh, didn't really work out for him. Can you imagine yeah. little Richard trying to convince people he wasn't gay? Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. Then Otis Redding uh, was about to take his spot. I think he did take a spot for a little while, right? Cause he was like yeah. fronting yeah. a couple of bands. Yeah. So he was fronting the upsetters for a while. They toured uh, the, the, the Chitlin circuit, you know, down South and they're hitting all of these, you know, all, all these clubs. So he was getting bigger, like and he's getting a notoriety down South. It's, it's, it's obviously basically just with black audiences. And, What's the uh, Chitlin uh, circuit. Okay. So let me explain <laughs> this to you, David. Um, here's, here's where I, I lose my career and I'm going to explain to you what the Chitlin circuit is. <laughs> Do you know what chiclets are? The gum? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're a delicious gum. Sometimes they're mint flavored. Sometimes they're fruit flavored. Okay, mm-hmm. so if you put a number of them together with uh, some some copper wiring, mm-hmm. you can actually make a circuit board, and you can like, and you hook it to a potato, and then it'll run a clock. Mm. And I believe that's what the chocolate circuit is. Oh, did I get that right? I, I I'm I'm not sure. Um, this okay. is I I'm learning today. I feel like you nailed it. 
I feel like this is. I'm here. I'm here to teach you, David. We're yeah. teaching finance. We're teaching science today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so around MacGyver this time, inspired circuit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, but, but by the way, uh, today's episode is brought to you by the Phoenix Foundation. That's that's MacGyver inside joke for all you MacGyver fans out there. All right. Uh, <laughs> one person will get that. Enjoy that reference. Right yeah, there. you. Uh, yes. <laughs> I just do this for myself. I really do. Uh, so uh, around this time, he starts recording a couple of songs uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. At one point, he, I think he and his one sister go out to LA and spend some time in LA, start recording a few things. His wife and kid stays back home, but then he goes out there. He records a number of songs that don't get a lot of notoriety, but like, I guess down south got some notoriety. Uh, my favorite of which is a, is a song called Fat Girl. That's a, oh. that's a fun one that he recorded, just a song called Fat Girl that you can listen to on the YouTubes or whatever. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, check, out, <laughs> check out the song Fat Girl by Otis Redding. Imagine uh, trying to come out with that now. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. just uh, it would it'd be great. Well, that's um, a that could be a very body positive song. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, I guess know. it depends yeah. how you. It can't come out today. It's just it's, it's very body positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Atlantic Records, he gets the Atlantic Records kind of gets wind of him and they express interest uh, in. Oh, and actually, really, they express interest in Johnny Jenkins, the guitar player that he's playing with. So Johnny Jenkins is kind of making a name for himself. Atlantic Records likes Johnny and they send him to Stax Records, Stax Recordings in Memphis, Tennessee. So they go to Stax, which we're going to get into Stax in just a bit, which is kind of an amazing story. Um, so. Johnny Jenkins doesn't have a driver's license. Otis drives Johnny to this recording studio to lay down some tracks and see if they uh, see if they work. Uh, the, the basically the house band at Stax at the time is Booker T and the MGs of Green Onions fame and all that. The great, great band. They start recording a couple songs or, you know, practicing a couple songs with Johnny Jenkins. It's a pretty unproductive session. It ends early. It's, it doesn't really go anywhere. And his driver, Otis, is like, can I sing some songs? Can I sing some songs? And they're like, sure. And he sings the song, Hey, Hey, Baby. And they're like, all right, this is fine. And then he sings these albums of mine and just like blows the house down. Like the producers, the engineers, the the, the band members are just blown away by his voice by what he does and that becomes like his first big hit
they did he write, uh, I think they re- he wrote that one, right? I believe he, yeah, I think he did. Because yeah, he did I, a lot yeah. of covers. He covered a lot of songs, like, you know. Everybody covered each other every- back in that day. Yes, yeah, yeah. They, they all took each other's songs. And then if if a Stax artist recorded a song and it, it was big, then five other Stax artists would record it. They, they, yeah. all, they, they all shared. It's well, kind of read- like comedy today, like David, like, I don't know if you know, like, uh, Ken just always just takes other comics jokes like he just he'll just always do other comics jokes all the time mm-hmm. that's kind of what ken krantz is known yeah for, if just, i if i see something that's good why wouldn't you share it with everybody yeah i yeah. mean you know he's like i i heard this joke the other night i'm gonna tell it like it was me happening and that's how that's how ken's made his career and i, I think he's made a really good career of it and i and mm-hmm. i I'm, I'm very proud of him yes clearly me. a good i mean here i am <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> With the two of us sitting here. Uh, yeah. Well, I think I read some um, and it said like the first song he tried on that session, uh, they said he was doing a little Richard impression. And basically yeah. they were like, no, nah, that's not it. And they were about to leave. And then they said, let me do one more. And then yeah. he did the um, hit the song that he did. He wrote. Yeah. And then they were like, yeah. oh, this is awesome. Yeah, I feel like that's it, it, that's always that's always the story of like every yeah. artist. Mm-hmm. They're just like, no, thanks. And they like you can see him behind the glass, you know, and they yeah. clip it off. He's like, let me give you one more. And yeah. then yeah. he just comes out. <laughs> right. Like, or like, whatever. Like Dewey Cox. That's how his career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just like walk the line with a, with a yeah. Johnny Cash movie. Like he's yep. like doing all these uh, songs and they're, they're, they're about to leave. And he's like, let me try one more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The band's never heard it. <laughs> they all yeah, just fall yeah. into line and he's, play along. He's like, yeah. He's like, why don't you play something that you wrote? He's like, okay. <laughs> I wrote it's like this, the same thing with every story. I wrote this in the car on the way over. Yeah. <laughs> it's never been sung before, but. Uh, so uh, they released that single in October of 1962. These Arms of Mine and Hey, Hey, Baby was the B-side to that. His first his debut album, Pain in My Heart, was 1964. It got, you know, basically good reviews. Of course, it's still basically just down south, the, the primarily black audience. Uh, in November of 1963, uh, he got put on uh, a show at the Apollo Theater. It was like one of the it was for uh, actually a couple shows of the Apollo where they were doing sort of a compilation live album. Uh, Benny King of Stand By Me fame. The Coasters were on that and a couple different artists. And he was uh, one of those uh, acts for the Apollo Theater. So he kind of got his his live uh, band going. And I think the thing we should should talk about right now is just like how crazy this band is was at Stax. The MGs, basically. Steve Cropper was one of his big uh, writing partners and guitarist. Uh, actually, as a matter of fact, uh, around that time, Johnny Jenkins left the band because he was afraid that the Stax guys were going to steal his style. Like He's like, you guys are stealing my style. I don't want you. So he kind of left and did his own thing. That's when Steve mm-hmm. Cropper uh, kind of came up. He was playing piano for him a little bit and became his lead guitarist. And he and, uh, and Otis and Steve Cropper for the rest of his life, like they were basically kind of you know, kind of two two guys right. always, yeah, always it, writing and performing. It was a it was a four man band. It was Booker T, Steve Cropper, uh, James Duck Dunn, Duck Dunn, yeah, Booker uh, T, the wrestler. <laughs> yes, yes, he got he got really good. He, he he's a really talented guy, David. I mean, does a little bit of everything. Here here's what I didn't know about Booker T and the MGs. I always knew the you know I've always been aware of Stack records and and the kind of sound that they produced and i knew booker t and the mgs were um 
the house band and and played on all those classic recordings. What I had no idea until I started researching this was I didn't know that half the band was white and the other half was black. I always assumed it was a black band. Yeah. And um I thought what was really amazing was in in doing this was learning the history of Stax Records and and how um they were in the in the heart of one of the most segregated racist towns in the world in in Memphis, Tennessee and um everything inside that building was fully integrated. They they had it was white and black songwriters and producers and musicians and they had a very welcoming um they were a uh, Anybody could walk in off the street. If you could play an instrument or sing a song or contribute somehow, they had an open door policy where anybody could walk in off the street. And if they liked what you did, you became part of the family. They, they let you cut albums. They let you play on other people's label, uh, other people's songs. So um, it was it was a super progressive studio like right in the middle of some of the worst racial tension on the planet um steve and, and you had a combination of like a lot of these different backgrounds you had like some country western stuff obviously like r&b stuff gospel stuff right. soul stuff so you have all these different types of musicians coming together just to create this incredible sound right and it was it was founded it was founded by um a brother and sister and they were I had no idea. I, I always assumed it was like a uh, black owned label. They were they were white country music fans. The The brother played uh, the brother played the fiddle and, and they started it as as a way to get more country music out there. Mm -hmm. I don't think there are any black owned labels until maybe Motown, right? Right. Well, they were they, they were right around. They were right around the same time. They were actually in pretty good competition with each other for a little bit. And then Motown sort of blew the doors off of that. I think it was like once Otis died, they they lost their biggest star and there there wasn't any coming back from that. Yeah, well, and they kind of they kind of uh, got screwed. He was he was their um, their uh, the notorious B.I.G. Yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, Stacks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? You know what I want to say, Chip, just to, to the point that you were making before how um, the that nobody in America was really hearing the albums and it wasn't like it had a wide reach or influence. What was happening, though, in London at the time was you had all of these uh, art school British invasion dudes who were all getting import records from America and they were all listening. I mean, you you yeah. had you were the Rolling Stones covering Pain in My Heart back in 1964. Where can my baby 
so they were it, it was like London was ahead of the curve of what was going on in America's own backyard. Yeah. I mean, and they, and so like America has no idea what's going on with this and London and even other parts of Europe are just, he's, and the band doesn't even know what's going on. Like they're not aware that they're a big hit over in Europe either. It's just, you know, so they're just kind of, you know, doing these clubs, doing these, these kind of one nighters and go and going around the South uh, playing for this. Uh, in 1965, he co-wrote uh, the song I've been loving you too long with Jerry Butler. And uh, they arranged a bunch of new songs. Uh, 10 out of the 11 songs for this new album were, were recorded between July 9th and 10th of 1965. Within a 24 hour period, they recorded 10 of the 11 songs like in one day, just banged out these uh, banged out these songs. That song became the album Otis Blue, which was a huge hit. And one of the things they do just to kind of show again the racism and even just the way that stacks and atlantic i guess tried to get around it was they were like if we put the picture of otis on the cover radio stations aren't going to play it because you know because because he's a black artist you know uh, people aren't going to buy because so what they decided to do is instead of putting the artist on they just got this really gorgeous girl and just put her on the album cover and you can just hear it because it's like he's like singing to her, you know, so it's just a picture of a girl. So you can't even see him. And then it becomes it beget, it starts to get a little bit more airplay in, in the U.S. Well, two, which is two, crazy. two funny, hilarious things that just popped in my mind. Um, it's like they kind of CNC music factory to him. Yes. CNC Music Factory had the big girl sing and then they had the model in the video. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and, and also, like, if you buy that record and you're like, oh, this white man, he has a unique voice. Yes. <laughs> it's like, and he's up there on a the record like, you got to, got to, got to. <laughs> like, there's no white guy that sings like that. <laughs> uh, oh, God. Oh, Everybody's great. listening, starting to get suspicious. That doesn't sound like, hmm. <laughs> I think Otis <laughs> yeah. might be a colored. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny to think like in our lifetime with CNC Music Factory, the people were like, I, I don't think America's ready to see a fat lady on television. Like we can't yeah. possibly have this. Yeah, of course. Even yeah. though Otis Redding tried by writing the fat girl song years before that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, ahead of the curve. Yes. The curves. <laughs> the curves. <laughs> so, uh, but this album with others, like he's becoming popular though, and, he, and he's making a good living. He's making a lot of money right now. Uh, he uh, he buys like this three hundred acre ranch in Georgia called the Big O Ranch, which is a, is a great name. So he and his family move into there. So he's doing really well for himself. Now, some uh, I, th I think it was Lou Adler, and and I I think it was is it. Jerry Wexler, Jerry I think Wexler. like some of these people were like seeing his act and like this guy is undeniable. Like he's so talented and they're, tr they're trying to help him in even Bill Graham, who we kind of painted as an asshole in the last episode, the live eight episode, but he was like pushing for him to like, you know, as a crossover act, uh, he played the whiskey a go-go in LA. Uh, Bob Dylan came to that and like a bunch of people uh, came to see him there. I think it was even, um, was it that one was, uh, that was a different one, actually. Okay. There's great, actually, there's uh, great recordings of that that you can yeah. still of him at the Go Go Go. Just to see him on stage with the MGs is just like it's electric. And they 
like they play the songs like basically at double speed on stage. The energy is crazy. He's just a, like he's, he's a big guy, first of all, and he's just a madman on stage. I mean, everything's electric on stage when, when they get together. Here, here's how good he was. So I was um, I'm watching it's It's on Amazon. It's it's I, they went to tour in 1967 somewhere like Norway or Oslo or something like that. Bunch of. Yeah white European people. And it was the Stax Vault tour. Vault was Stax's sister record label. Stax records were getting so much play on the air that they were worried they were going to get accused of payola or something shady. So they were they just set up a, a second label called Volt. All the same artists, still Booker T and the MGs. But this way they could send them to radio stations with a different name on them besides Stack. So people don't get suspicious. Wow. So that's crazy. It's on Amazon. If you have it, it's, it was the Stax Volt tour. It's in black and white. It is one of the best concert films I've ever seen. And it's just like their roster of artists. So it starts with Booker T and the MGs and then starts working its way up. Wilson Pickett comes out, does in the midnight hour. Um, and then right before Otis, uh, Sam and Dave come on. Mm -hmm. I've, I don't really I never I've known like, hold on, I'm coming and soul man like you. You've heard those songs, but I didn't know much about them. And these two guys are as electric performers as you've ever seen in your life. Like imagine two Michael Jackson's dancing together and belting out amazing soul music behind one of the best bands in the world. And um, I'm watching these interviews about them. They would whip crowds into absolute frenzies, like where you would think who who could possibly even want to follow that. And then Otis would come out and they would just explode. Oh, that's that's nuts. Yeah. But you now got you're saying that this is one of the most electrifying con you know, concert videos that you've ever seen. Now, would you say that this is better? Cause I know you always talk about this one, John Mellencamp's 85 tour that you have everything Ooh. on, uh, on VHS. <laughs> Are you saying that, that it's better than I'm, that? Ken? I'm saying you're always even, talking about how great the Mellencamp, 85 even, tour you know, was. once, once he lost the cougar and got all pretentious, I sort of lost interest. Um, all right. yeah, no, that's, it's, it's amazing. And then I also heard a, a funny story about hold on. I'm coming, which is such a classic, uh, which is such a classic song. So the, uh, one of the main songwriting teams at Stax Records was Isaac Hayes and Dave Porter. And they were fooling her. Sam and Dave wanted nothing to do with Stax. Atlantic didn't know what to do with them. And they, mm -hmm. they same with it. They said, all right, go down and record at Stax and we'll see what happens. And yeah. they got there. They didn't like the team. They didn't like the people. Sam says that he actually burst in the tears when he got there because it, it was it was like a step up from recording in somebody's garage. And um, but then they start showing them some of the songs and they start getting into them. They realize there's a chemistry there. They form a bond with Isaac Hayes and Dave Porter. And as they're trying to write, hold on, I'm coming. They can't come up with the lyric for hold on i'm coming and dave porter says in an interview they're they're getting frustrated like nature calls he's got to go to the bathroom so he's in the bathroom and then all of the sudden maybe it was isaac hayes sat down at the piano and got 
the riff going on the piano and all of a sudden Sam and Dave started singing and they felt like something was about to happen. So they start screaming for Dave Porter to get out of the bathroom and he screams, hold on, I'm coming. And then it was like a light bulb. I'm not making this up. And then like, it was like a light bulb went on over their heads and they were like, that's yeah. the fucking song. And that's how, that's how it became. Hold on. I'm coming. It's because this dude had to take a shit. That's great. Yeah. David, you write most of your best jokes on the toilet, right? Yes. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I remember one time I was taking a dump and uh, and they were like, because I had to go somewhere. They're like, hurry up, man. You got to finish. And then I was like, sorry, but this dump is kidnapping me right now. It's like it's kidnapping season in here. Uh -huh. And they were like, and then someone's like, you know what? You got to write that down. Then I wrote it down. It's, okay, so that's where that's where that came from. Wow. Mm. And then I went to recorded it, and they said that I sounded too much like Carrot Top, and they were about to stop the recording of the comedy album. And then they oh. said, "Hey, why don't you try saying that joke as yourself?" And I said, yeah. "Well, I guess I never <laughs> thought of that." And then I did that bit as myself, and it became the legendary comedy routine that it is now. That's a true story. <laughs> Wow. Mm -hmm. That felt like a See, true story. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sh thanks for sharing your writing process with us, David, by the way. And, and, and that, that's what the mm -hmm. people are coming for. They're coming to learn yes. facts about Otis writing, but they want to hear about your writing process. And I think we're really mm -hmm. getting a, a sneak peek into that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not a lot of podcasts will cover both of these things. Yeah, we're the we're the crossover hit that everybody's looking for. <laughs> uh, so, um, so in 1966, uh, he goes back to Stax and he records uh, "Try a Little Tenderness," which is like right up there with "Sitting in the Dock of the Bay," like one of his signature songs. He didn't write it; that was a standard that was written back in the 30s. Bing Crosby had. Uh, recorded it Sinatra had recorded it in this role like crooner way and then he goes in and records it and the publishers of the original Try a Little Tenderness actually sued and tried unsuccessfully to get Otis Redding to stop recording this because he was black and they're like you're gonna ruin the song we don't want mm -hmm. you to do this you're <laughs> like it's such a beautiful song you you're not allowed to do this yeah, America wasn't ready for a tender black man in this. Well, 60s. they didn't. They didn't want yeah. him to black it up, pretty much. That's <laughs> right. Uh... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, they. Uh, I, I forget exactly how they said it. it. It's it's literally like the legal terms, and I don't think I'm even allowed to say the words that they used uh, in 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 the legal terms. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was it was fairly. It was like, and it wasn't even like, oh, we have the rights to it or whatever. Like they were basically like you're not a white person, so you're not allowed to record it. Like, that's literally their, that was their argument. Yeah, They're they like, were like, go get us Papoon. 
Yes. Yeah. 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 Can, yeah. Can, yeah. Can somebody get Percy Faith on the phone, please? <laughs> we don't think that he's aware that this is about tenderness, uh, t- tenderness, and not tenderloins. Um, <laughs> Try a little tenderloins. They would have given that song to Otis. Clearly, <laughs> if he if he changes the lyrics to "Try a little chicken tenderloins," then we are willing to let him take a part of this song. Uh, fry yeah, fry if, a little if, tenderloins he could have, but <laughs> if, but now here's the thing. Try a little chicken tenderloin. <laughs> it's just, you know that just the way rock and roll goes, you know that if Otis survived in 1983, there would be a try a little tenderloins Purdue commercial. Like that's that's oh, what for sure. Oh, of course. No, actually, I think yeah. the Beach Boys probably would have done Otis Redding's uh, version and why and, and rewited it up. <laughs> yeah, of course, with their striped shirts. You gotta try a little chicken tenderloins. Yes, you tenderloin, do. They're tenderloin, all snapping. Do you know? I was watching. So, in watching that video, he does he does the song "Shake." Which yeah. I've always loved and never paid any attention to the lyrics until I was watching it last night. And I was like, shake it like a bowl of soup. <laughs> what? Yeah, like, you shake soup. Who's, who, yeah. who the fuck shakes their bowl of soup? Like nobody is shaking Wait, are you, soup. Are you kidding me? Well, you don't you don't know that reference, Ken? No, David, you know, you obviously know that reference. Like, yeah, that, the first time I heard that song was in a um, uh, epilepsy commercial for <laughs> epilepsy yeah. medicine. Yeah, yeah. And my my mother, I, I told you this. My grandmother was a she was a soup shaker back in the forties. Mm-hmm. Like that's what you did. Mm-hmm. Like she was hired in a kitchen, like in, where they would make the soup, <laughs> and like and she had these like tough Irish hands, so she could mm-hmm. hold the the pot and you know, not really burn herself. And they're like. They're like, all right, Martha, sh- shake that soup, and then she would shake it, and then they would dish it out. Like that, that sh- soup shaking was a, was a big deal. It was a Pennsylvania <laughs> thing. You grew up in Jersey, Ken. I grew up yeah. in Jersey. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Was, right. was that they, like more like we a like we, we? Yeah, we like our in in su- Southern PA. We like our our soup shaking. I mean, that's just the way. It's like like my wife the other a couple weeks ago she made like this this chicken noodle soup and like she puts it in front of me I was like did you shake this and she's like no <laughs> just, and I just, just picked it up and threw the entire thing against the wall and shattered it the dog yeah. started crying I just started screaming just throwing shit around I was like I was like you do not make me a soup in this house without fucking shake shaking it first mm-hmm. um it's so funny I just typed into Google shake lyrics uh thinking yeah. that like of course Otis is going to be the first thing that comes up the yeah. the yin yang twins uh version of shake i'm like i'm like reading this and i'm like up in the club fuck vip i'm like what <laughs> yeah. otis was really ahead of his time Did otis say shake it like a salt shaker bitch Did he? <laughs> <laughs> and then just like andre just comes in and he's like uh like a like a polaroid picture guys and they're like no just please leave <laughs> Um, Well, I think you have to shake soup that way. uh, Everything gets mixed up properly. Yeah. Yeah. Either either that or it's just like wet celery. Nobody wants wet celery. You got to shake that shit up. Speak for yourself, buddy. There's (laughs) a lot of fans of wet celery out there. Yeah, that's true. Maybe maybe I'm old, but it just feels like a good way to get burned unnecessarily. (laughs) It was I was I was so hung up on it that the rest of the lyrics made sense to me. I'm like, well, I get shaking it like a loop to loop. Yeah. 
Yeah, but obviously. soup, but a bowl you're, of you're, soup, you're that's crazy. Like a bowl of soup. <laughs> so that that it's a so it, it said shake it like a bowl of soup, or I just said shake the soup. He says shake it like a bowl of soup. Mm. Here, shake it like a bowl of soup. Let your body loop to loop. Put your hands on your hip. Come on and let your backbone slip. Move your body like your hip and just shake. There was a lot of hips and pelvis references back in the day and spine references. You weren't yeah. You, yeah. legally. I don't think you were allowed to sing about your dick yet. Well, maybe that's yeah. what they were saying, except they just couldn't say it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> slap your pelvis on the table. Now you got to <laughs> slap your pelvis on the table. <laughs> Take your pelvises and put them together. Put your pelvises together. Slap them together. Pull down your pants and slap your pelvis. <laughs> Sitting on the dock of the bay. Docking my pelvis with my best friend today. Ooh. Just two guys docking our pelvises together on the dock of the bay. <laughs> They had to teach these kids. They weren't allowed to teach sex ed in school, so they had to do it by song. Uh, if mm-hmm. you look back at the twist lyrics and twist again lyrics by Chubby Checker, mm-hmm. they're filthy. It's just filthy. It's just pornographic is what he's telling these child- children yes. to do. Yep. Yeah, that's why they're all having babies at 16. Yeah, and it's abusive, too. He's like, remember when you did that horrible thing last summer? We're going to do it again. That's what we're going to do again. <laughs> I like that they came to him and they were like, we need we need another. We need a follow up. And then he like yeah. he went and thought about it and was like, what if we twist a second time? Yeah. <laughs> I what if we have a, a second thong song? Oh, that is pretty. That's hilarious that they're like, let's do that. But, but they that was back before remixes. Yeah. Like, you know, there yeah. was covers, which was kind of a remix, but like an official remix. I think that was back before like official remixes. So nowadays it would be like, you know, the twist remix. Yeah. You know, there'd be like a guest rapper yeah. on it, you know. Yeah. By 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 like year 10, it was like it was like the name of the song was like, hear me out. What if we twist just one last time? <laughs> did did you ever did you know that chubby checker and howard stern were in a feud for a while really there was um <laughs> i heard it live robin was reading the news one day and it was some anniversary for chubby checker like it was like you know the 40th anniversary of like the twist coming out or something mm-hmm. so she says she was like and today's a big anniversary for uh chubby checker and Howard says, what has it been 50 years since someone heard of him? <laughs> it was just a dumb throwaway joke. Yeah. But then Chubby Checker uh-huh. got all mad. There was like a whole feud in the media th- about it. God, I saw Chubby Checker perform the twist. And I'm sure he probably did twist again. I'm sure. What, what carnival was- were you at? 
Uh, it's pretty close. <laughs> it was. It was at noon. I think it was me and Johnny Good Times, a mm -hmm. friend of the show, Johnny Good Times, met up with my wife. My wife was working at City Hall at the time. This is probably like seven, eight years ago. Okay, maybe it couldn't have been that. I don't know. But but it was in front of City Hall. It was at Dilworth Plaza in Philadelphia. And you chubby checkers hails from the great city of Philly. And it was a lunchtime show where they were going to I think they were going to try to do like a world record to get like the most people to do the twist at once. But like they didn't get that many people like it would have been much easier if it was like at some like he's on some oldie show over in Camden or whatever, like at a big mm -hmm. arena. And, yeah, they get 10,000 people to do it. There was a couple hundred people there. I feel like that would be the world record. Right there. Yeah. I would feel like right whoever there. participated with that right there would be it would have been the world record. Exactly. Yeah. So we show up and he did like maybe like a half hour worth of songs. I think maybe maybe just did the two. I don't remember. But it was like a hundred degrees that day. And this this is not a young man. And he's it he he's a big guy and he had like jet black hair and uh he's wearing a lot of makeup, I think, and he's wearing He's wearing a Canadian tuxedo. He's wearing uh, like d blue jeans and like a blue denim jacket with, I think, a denim shirt underneath. Like, it's just like he's head to toe. But it's like the hottest day of the year. And this like 75 year old man is up there and he killed it. He was great. I got to say he he killed the songs that he did. But we were worried that he was just going to keel over because he's wearing like seven layers of denim in outside in the sun on the hottest day of the year doing the twist. But we did the twist with him. Did you set the world record? No, I don't think so. I, I, oh. I think they they tried to get people there, but it was like it was also like Tuesday at noon. Like it wasn't like, oh, a big Friday concert or something like that. It was just yeah. I think in the middle of the week, just on people's lunch breaks, people were just kind of walking past. And it's like, there's Chubby Checker. There he is doing the twist again like he did 40 years ago. Come on, let's twist again like we did 40 <laughs> years ago. I wonder if he was just getting like panicking halfway through a set and he's just like, come on, let's twist. Somebody go to Rita's. <laughs> Give me a cherry Rita's. It's hot as hell up here. <laughs> round and round and up and down. Let's get me a classic from Wawa. Um, you know, speaking of those songs and like euphemisms for uh, for that and making them dirty, uh, this just actually makes sense to me. I'm just getting a childhood memory uh, in my house. Uh, when I was little, my family referred to sex as uh, the monster mash. That's what we called it. <laughs> really? Yeah. They're like, like if, if people were, were making love on in like a movie, my dad be like, you need to leave the room right now. The uh, these two adults are doing the monster mash. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's true. I hope that'd be great if it's true. That'd be amazing. <laughs> uh, by the way, from now on, I'm just going to refer to sex as the monster mash. I haven't monster mashed in eight years. <laughs> I've just. That's the, the only Halloween song. They wrote one Halloween song and they were like, that's enough. I, they, I know. It's one of my favorite. I'm going to I'm going to go down and, and say. I love the Monster Mash more than most songs of my favorite artists. You never more heard the than Monster like any REM song. Let's Monster Mash again. You don't remember that one? <laughs> 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 yeah, it was called Thriller, I think. Uh, I, by the way, I, one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> I was at, it was a couple years ago, and it was when Alexa was like a big new thing. And I was at my brother and sister-in-law's house and like the whole family was there, like two sides of family. There's like 30 people there for Christmas dinner and kid, like kids are running around and everything and they have Christmas music playing. Uh, but like 
everybody's around, but like dinner's happening and everybody's sitting down for dinner. And during dinner, I would just get up every once in a while and I would just go out into the kitchen because we're all in the dining room. And I would just go out into the kitchen and whisper to Alexa. Like during like it's like Bing Crosby playing or whatever. And I would just whisper to Alexa, I'd be like, Alexa, play Monster Match. And like Monster <laughs> Match kept going on <laughs> at Christmas dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Monster Mash Part 2 was actually Rocky Dennis's debut album. <laughs> uh, you just reminded me. I haven't watched or laughed at that movie in 30 years. It might be yeah. time to revisit it. Um, might need to go to uh, to City Hall and play it on a big screen and try to set a, a world record for people <laughs> laughing. <laughs> We've set a new world uh, record. There's five thousand people here laughing at yeah. the mask movie. Or it's like, like what's what's the world record for people trying to keep a straight face? Yeah, like I think that would be. A... <laughs> All what right, were we so, talking about? Uh, Otis Redding. Let's, let's let's go back to Otis Redding. Um, so I think like the big turning point for, definitely for him was so he's getting a little bit of crossover success, but but not a lot. Right. You know, there's a lot of pushback. Mm-hmm. It's you know, we're in the midst of like the, you know, uh, the civil rights era, but just especially obviously down south. It's just like, you know, segregation is just, you know, he's he's not getting the the respect that he should. Uh, they uh, they go to London because, like Ken said, they go to London. Uh, Stack sends them over for four. And they said they they got there and it was kind of like early in the morning. They landed Heathrow Airport. There's like not really anybody around. And the band is like, Band and Otis are like, okay, how do we get to the airport? Or how do we get to the hotel from the airport? And they go out and these limos pull up and it's the Beatles limos. Like the Beatles sent their limos to take Otis Redding and his band to their hotel. And they play and like they're just blown away by all these mod kids in London who are just going apeshit for him, like just going crazy. They know all the lyrics. They just, they just love him. And he's like, I think he was doing all these interviews and just like the worldwide respect or the, 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 the nationwide respect for him, like, and all over Europe for these integrated audiences that they never, they've never seen before in, in the U S uh, cause it's so racist over there. And they see, see how respected they are. And like, all these kids love them. So they come back after like a two week tour and just kind of are, are, are all of them are just like new people. They're like, we're superstars now. And like, how is this not happening in the U S and like they come in with a brand new confidence. They, they go and they play. Uh, so they come back to the U S they play three nights at the Fillmore in San Francisco and Bill Graham, the, the promoter uh, literally calls it. I think he said it was like, I forget, I have it written somewhere, but he was like, basically he's like, these were the best concerts I ever put on. You know, he's like probably the most famous concert promoter ever. And he was like the three nights that Otis played at the Fillmore San Francisco were the greatest concerts I, I ever promoted. Like he said, you know, so, so he's, he's finally starting to get some crossover. Yeah. Like the, the, the crowds, he, he somehow got um, the crowds were packed with like hippies. Like it, it, it was, it was a cross of hippies and, and black fans. And it was, um, he, yeah, he, he somehow got embraced by like that whole hippie generation. Yeah. So they're, ju- they're just kind of like on this, on this next level. Um, so then in, in 67, so then we get to like the big performance in 67, 
uh, they're asked to perform at the Monterey Pop Festival, which is this huge music festival that like they the Monterey Jazz Festival and, and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then this was, I, I believe, their first one because this is sort of it was in June of 67. It's sort of the it's the kickoff of, you know, the the historic summer of love in San Francisco. And it's all of these acts play. I think it was like Janis Joplin. It was the who played Hendrix. It was Hendrix's Hendrix first big uh, U.S. That's where you know, that's where he plays the guitar. Oh, no, that was Woodstock where he uh, does the Star Spangled Banner. Star Spangled, with his yeah, yeah, Woodstock, teeth. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of these and then like established acts, but all, a bunch of these new acts and they bring Otis out. And he was the Beach Boys were supposed to headline the second night of the Monterey Pop Festival. They pulled out at the last minute for a number of reasons that are Carl Wilson might have been. He was about to possibly be arrested because of some something about like dodging the draft or they that the the, the rumors the Beach Boys thought it's like all these new groups and like that they don't fit in. But uh, but anyway, like they pulled out at the last minute, which made Otis Redding the headliner for the second night. And it's just thousands and thousands of these kids, you know, there to see the show and just that you can watch it on YouTube. And it's like literally I mean, there's there's Queen at Live Aid. And like this is right up there with like one of the most electric performances that's like blue the roof off the place. Bob Weir from the great, the grateful dead played uh, that show. And like Bob Weir is famous for saying like, he's like, I think I saw God that night when he watched Otis threading, like just, just everybody away. She may be weary. Them young girls, they do get weary. Wearing that same old miniskirt dress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when she gets weary, you try your little tenderness. Yeah, they heard it like uh, when you when you see it, like he's just like full of energy and just like all over the place. And like you said, like the band's playing like a thousand miles an hour. Yeah, it's like, yeah, he does look. It is crazy, though, that he dies. It because he really does. Like, I think there was just something with that generation where they all looked like Roy Orbison was like 45 or 50 when he died and looked 75. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was I think all those guys took a lot of speed to to get through tour. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I think they were all like like Johnny Cash has talked about it. I I think it was just all a lot of um Well, there's different types of the old, you know, black doesn't crack theory. Um the first one is the one that most people know is that, you know, uh usually black people tend to age better. And, uh, you know, look younger than their actual age. And then there's also some black people who look very old at a young age and they continue to look exactly like that for the next 40 years. Yeah, like Morgan Freeman. (laughs) Yeah, until it catches. Morgan Freeman's got those freckles. Those freckles have uh, have come along. So there's there's a little bit different with that. If without freckles, I think he probably looks the same forever. (laughs) That's some freckle history for some of you out there. <laughs> we're, it's, we're, we're, we're everything today. 
Chip, you remember how like we did that Joe Bryth episode and then uh, the director like found the episode yeah. and became a fan. I don't think that's happening with this one. Like, I don't think anybody, <laughs> I don't think anybody in Otis Redding's camp is going to get back to us and be like, no. you guys did a fantastic yeah. job. You guys really, you guys really <laughs> nailed it. That chubby checker stuff was just really, that thing about John Cougar Mellencamp was great. You know, can we come on your, can we come on your podcast, please? <laughs> <laughs> there is, um, I, you know, I know that we touched on this. I'm, I cannot believe how little there is out there about him. Like there's no Netflix documentary, like nothing. And, and yeah. I, I feel like had he lived, his voice was, I mean, like up there with Aretha Franklin. Like, I think if he had lived, he would have ended up being just as big and well loved and and his influence was was crazy they record labels started popping up in memphis and and the surrounding areas because he he was he was getting so much airplay and selling so many records down there that whole labels were popping up trying to find the next otis redding yeah and i think he, he was making like at his peak right before he died, probably like 60,000 a show or something like that. Right. Which back he was then was crazy money. Yeah. And he, he wrote, he wrote all those, you know, he wrote most of those songs. He well, wrote, I mean, the, he equivalent, wrote the, the equivalent to that modern day, 60,000 a show. Sorry. But yeah. it was really like 6,000. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, but yeah, he, he was, ma he was making, he was making a ton. And, uh, you know, and, did, and that, that did, was the thing where he, they said, kind of like I said, his two biggest influences, uh, were Sam Cooke and, and uh little richard and somebody i forget who it was i don't know if it was james brown or somebody said like otis actually didn't have that great of a vocal range as far as like going very high or very low but he just had that intensity range of like he can be like that smooth that you know like a smooth kind of crooner S sam cook kind of thing but then also had that electricity of 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 uh, little richard too so like he could go back and forth between those two energies and just like and that's what made it just so dynamic each, you know, you go back and forth between a ballad and like a crazy number and just, you know, blow the roof off the place. And yeah. that's when he really started to develop even more. So right at basically uh, shortly after the Monterey Pop Festival and then like just all of these new this opens up to this brand new audience and he kind of starts exploding. Uh, he actually had to stop singing for six weeks because he had polyps on his throat like on his vocal cords which is fairly common for singers but he had these polyps where he had to he had to have some surgery he couldn't talk for two weeks and he couldn't sing for six weeks like he just he had to he had to rest it uh, apparently he wrote like 30 new songs or at least sketched 30 new songs in that in that time uh he oh, during that time he was also really inspired by he was listening to sergeant pepper and was really blown away by sergeant pepper and that's what really influenced sitting on the dock of the bay when he writes that that a lot of people actually didn't like, like his, like a lot of the people at Stacks and even his wife were like, I don't like this song. This is not you. This is a weird, you're going out of your element. And like, it's a weird tempo. It, it's, it doesn't sound like a, a soul record. And they, they were kind of down on it, but he was starting to experiment. He's like, I want to do a different thing. And like, you know, kind of pushed for it. I think you, yeah, had, well, mm -hmm. you had an interesting cross pollination thing where like he was influencing all of uh, he was influencing a lot of the British invasion bands, 
But yep. then he was in turn being influenced by them. And he was he was incorporating. There was a lot of rock songs in his uh, in his live act. He did. Yeah. Um, Satisfaction. He, he, satisfaction. Uh, I want to say Day Tripper. He definitely covered. Day Tripper, he did. Yeah, yeah, he'd covered something by the Beatles. Yeah. He also I don't know how many people know this. He wrote Respect. Yeah. Um, which I, you know, everyone credits to Aretha Franklin as like this huge feminist anthem, but he, it was written by Otis Redding. Yeah. And, and performed it. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a great, he did, uh, most people don't know he did hard to handle that mm-hmm. made the, uh, the black crows years later. Everybody thinks a lot of people think hard to handle is a black crow song. It's like, yeah. that's, mm-hmm. that's just notice Redding cover. That's all that is. Um, and hot, hot for teacher too. Well, hot, hot for teacher. He yeah. did. Hot, uh, a lot he, of people don't know that. Yeah, um, uh, he. I don't know if you know Molly Crew was actually really inspired by him. Otis Redding uh, during the uh, the Monterey Pop Festival actually played the drums. Did you see that? He actually played the drums, and that he's the first wor- person to have a three hundred sixty degree rotating drum set that was like flown across the audience. He was playing. Uh, the drums upside down, just like Tommy Lee did many, many years later. And they had yeah. that rig that that brought him. At Not least that's what I'm hoping happened. <laughs> I don't know if that happened, but I'm hoping that yeah. that happened. Mm-hmm. I feel like and it, it wasn't Tommy a pretty, Lee's. Pretty good chance it happened. Yeah. Well, they said he kind of had a, fleer, a fear of flying until he did that, um, that, that aerial drum rotational performance. Yeah, he's, he's like, oh, I can fly. There's nothing wrong yeah. with it. I don't have fear of heights anymore. I can fly <laughs> whenever. It doesn't yeah. matter what the weather is. I'm cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, just get back before we get to his his uh, flight. Um, he was like Spoiler such a, alert. I know. Uh Oh, but buckle up, people. Literally, they um, just his writing style. Like when he was writing these songs, like he he, lo- he was talking about how like he loves simplicity in his songs. Like he kept things simple. He liked simple lyrics. He didn't want to get too crazy. Like he like that's what soul music was. He wants it to be fairly basic. But like he could also at the same time write these really complex pieces. And he just wanted kind of one of these geniuses that had all of the music in his head. And he would like he would know horn sections. So like he would be playing, you know, like they'd be practicing at stacks and like he's like, okay, and he would just sing the horn section to like the saxophones, to the trumpets. Like, this is what I want you to play. Like, do it this way. You know, and like that's how they learned how to play that. He just had it in his head and be like, okay, you do this. Now you do this. And he would just kind of run around and like hit each section and be like this is what you're going to do this is what you're going to do and just kind of sang it at them and they came back his song that song uh fa 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 like that one that he has that became famous Mm -hmm. that was literally just the way he made the sound of a saxophone he's like play it this way fa 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 and they're like just sing that that's fun and that became a hit just because that's how he would teach the saxophones how to play that well i think michael jackson would do the same thing except he would beatbox it to what he wanted them to play yeah Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, they they said Otis Redding had no musical training. He couldn't read mm-hmm. music. It was just in his head. And uh, yeah, he he would just he would tell you what sound he wanted, but it was all stuck in his head. Yeah, but sitting on Dock of the Bay, it's like you know when they were like he got the backlash from. Uh, it's funny. Like, now the black people are like, it's gonna. It sounds too white. We we're afraid yep. you're gonna wipe this song up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then the other one, they're like, it's gonna be too black. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> but, they um, couldn't win. It's like I guess maybe like a lot of them are like they're used to these high level performances from him, and sitting on the dock, you can't do like a upbeat. I mean, I guess you probably could upbeat anything, but it just doesn't really work to do like a high energy city on the dock of the bay song. 
Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in And then I'll watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. No, you can't do it. And like, and that's the thing too, where like all of his lyrics were generally like about love and upbeat and fun. And like, even like they said, he was obviously like very inspired by, you know, like the civil rights movement and stuff like that. And like respect and that type of thing. Like he would get sort of social and like a little political, but it was always like couched in a love song like it would just be that'd be like the mm-hmm. underlying thing but it was it was usually just like fun upbeat stuff and then this is like literally like which is just so weird that you know it was his last you know hit uh you know it, the times come is like you know uh it's just so downbeat and basically it's like my life is over i don't have a reason to live kind of situation i'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay and just like you ride it out from you know from here on out which is such a weird it, it's just weird how that was his last although step. it's funny like we talked about this before like didn't briars turn that into a commercial didn't it become the ice cream sitting that. i'm not I'm, I'm being didn't it become no, like can, sitting yeah, on the I dock can, of a bay eating yeah. briars yeah oh maybe it's well, better maybe it's better after, he didn't live he to see that died spoiler alert yeah but uh he, like yeah it was his first crossover hit did it hit, i don't think it hit number one it in went, US, but it hit no it did one. it would it yeah. was it was it, his it, only number one hit yeah, it, and it was it was the first ever posthumous yeah. uh, uh, posthumous hit by by anybody. Like you know, after yeah. I, you know, it was a, it was the first number one uh, to to do that. Uh, and he recorded, he re-recorded, so he recorded it and like laid down a bunch of it. And like he got a bunch of pushback from his like you know friends and everything. And then he re-recorded it just three days before he died. So it was like you know it was right right before he passed away is when he re-recorded it. Um, so I'm assuming he never played it live. No, I, assume, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know. think yeah. so. Um, so uh, he had. This is in uh, December of 1967. He had three concerts over two nights at Leo's Casino in Cleveland. Uh, and, and we all know casino gigs. I mean, those are always a good time. But David, <laughs> you were just telling me some fun times about a casino gig you did this weekend. I mean, there's nothing yeah. better than a good casino gig. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to get at. So they did uh, three three uh, concerts over two nights at Leo's Casino in Cleveland, and then they were flying to Madison, Wisconsin, to do some shows. And uh, so apparently the weather was bad. They're like, "Don't do it." They were told, "Yeah, they were like told you shouldn't fly." Yeah, and uh, they're like, "No, it's cool. We can go." So it was like it was a small flight. It was it was him and the the Barkays, like his one. I guess I guess I think they were backing him at that point. It was like a couple of the Horn guys and all. Uh, they were on there, and then you know, of course, like the the pilot and one or two other people were on this plane. They fly from I believe Cleveland to Madison, Wisconsin, and apparently about four miles from their destination. So they're only four miles away. They're uh, they're about there. They get uh, radioed in permission to land. The pilot's like, you know, so he's like he's already starting like the landing process. And then uh, the next thing they know uh, it's for, for whatever reason, I I'm assuming because of the weather uh, they crashed into uh, Lake uh, Monona, I believe it is uh, the frozen Lake 
uh, Monona. And uh, of all the people on board, there was one survivor. One of the guys from the Barquets actually survived and kind of tells like just he's got bits and pieces of what he remembered. But apparently he couldn't swim, so he couldn't save anybody else. He was just hanging on to like a seat. Yeah, like a flotation. Like a yeah. Flotation device. And he can't he couldn't swim and he's in this frozen water. So he couldn't. He said anybody. he said he I, was I believe asleep. they crashed into a man lake, um, which is famous for um, its bee population. David, David, that's inappropriate. Oh, sorry. You're mocking me in my hat right now (laughs) that I actually I'm wearing. I'm wearing a hat that says Man Lake. We know bees. Uh, And I actually got this at one of my casino performances. I was opening for Todd Glass at Harvey's Casino in Lake Tahoe a couple of years ago. Hmm. And there was a beekeepers convention at the casino. I was like, I got to walk through this. I got to check this out. And they're selling uh, beekeepers baseball caps for uh, for ten dollars. And I was like, this is the greatest purchase I'm ever going to make. And it was. <laughs> <laughs> but they, I, what, the, the, I can't remember the guy that survived, if he had like severe injuries or not, was just because like I think they said like he all he remembers is waking up right before the crash. Yeah. And yeah. somebody else was like, oh, no. And then like, you know, yeah. next thing yeah. he knows, he's clutching a seat and yes. floating in the lake. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. got to be a fun way to wake up. Like, I'm sure he was awake then. Like, you're not snoozing after that like you're, you're he might have passed out out of fear or whatever and then like his yeah. then like you know just like survival instincts just clutching the seat mm-hmm. i mean this guy but also this guy's kind of have he's got to have superpowers who survives a plane crash and you can't swim yeah you know into a frozen lake yeah you can't swim yeah it's i mean ken did did you ever tell that story i've <laughs> survived a few plane crashes yeah. i don't like to talk mm-hmm. about it yeah um but but also like don't you think at what point do these guys learn like the weather's shitty you're being told not to it's not like you don't have an example of this you know like we already lost buddy holly and 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 yeah eight years before big bop yeah like there's there's a precedent already set for this and by the way if i'm ever about to get on a flight and the fucking pilot is like i don't think we should do this I'm out. I'm done. Like, I don't yeah. even, I don't mm-hmm. like getting on airplanes in perfect condition. Yeah. But I read just, something like James Brown told him not to fly. Oh, yeah. It was either, I think, I think it was James Brown said, don't use that type of plane or something like that. Yeah. He, he did say something about, yeah, like, like, don't, yeah, yeah. No. And, uh, and he was right. And he was right. Yeah. And then Otis writing was like, pay your taxes. Ha ha ha. Thinks he has the last laugh. Mm-hmm. Can James Brown get in trouble for, Tap. Oh, never mind. I think you're confusing <laughs> James Brown with Wesley Snipes, <laughs> which a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah. Otis's last words were like, don't smoke crack. That was James Brown. I've seen those interviews. <laughs> if you're if you're going out on a plane, what is your what are your last words? Like, what are you going to yell? Like, I think I, I I'd want to I think I'd want to say something kind of funny. You want to go out on a joke? Well, that's my time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll leave you with this. Well, I'm getting the light. Yeah. (laughs) I almost said something that Chip definitely would not approve of. I'll text it to you. Okay. No, say we'll we'll edit it out if it's too bad. We'll take your. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) I was going to say Allah Akbar. You might want to put a timestamp uh, on that one. Chip. You know? <laughs> Take that one out. Uh, 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 uh.
Uh, I would be looking around the plane for whoever I hated the most. And I would just take just a tiny bit of solace in that. Like, well, at least that fucking dickhead's going to. Yeah. Like just out of spite, like you did. Yeah. Or just like, or just like, I would just take a swing at the old lady sitting next to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, when do you get a chance to like just punch an old lady square in the face? Like, <laughs> who's going to know? <laughs> Nobody. I think I would just look at a child's eyes and I'd be like, this is all your fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or just like or just like ring just ring the flight attendant and then yeah. just like you know she's like hooked in up front you know but you just like you know call yeah. for her and just like lean into the aisle and like hold up your ha- half yeah. bottle of shasta yeah. and be like can i get some more more right seltzer there. please yeah <laughs> or I you know what i would do <laughs> you know here's what i would do i would like i'd be like uh i would just yell what's the deal with these airline peanuts <laughs> <laughs> what if you punch an old lady in the face and she's the one survivor and spends the rest of her life talking about what a fucking dickhead chip was? <laughs> she's like, I'm looking around for my oxygen mask and he sucker punched me. <laughs> I think I would yell out, oh, how about these Asian pilots, huh? <laughs> the stereotype is true. I it, Yeah, I think I would. It would be fun to just do so. Yeah. Um, or I'd be like, uh, you're up exit row. Like I would just put start putting pressure on the exit row people. <laughs> like you asked yeah. for it, buddies. <laughs> was the leg was shine. the leg room worth it? Yeah. <laughs> I take it back. There's a chance we hear from Oda's writings camp. Yeah, that's true. It'd be yeah. like a cease and desist letter. They're lawyers. Okay. Yeah, they're lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> so um uh so yeah, so that was December 10th, uh 1967. Uh, his his funeral was at the uh, the city auditorium, I believe, in Macon, Georgia, uh, had you know thousands of people and uh, on December 18th. And then in January of 1968, sitting on the dock of the bay was released. Uh, like we said, it hit the number one. It was the first uh, posthumous uh, number one hit of anybody. And uh, Little Richard inducted Otis into the Hall of Fame in 1989. And I highly recommend going on youtube to find that i'll find we'll, we'll throw some clips in from that that sounds i want to see little richard doing like stand-up it, it's it's great it's like it's like he's doing a roast like that's basically what's happening he's screaming at the people in the front row it, it's it's incredible did you ever see that. madonna yeah, do stand-up he, what's that did you ever see madonna do stand-up on the tonight on, show um the tonight show yeah right oh, yeah god it's it's yeah it's it, it's rough it's it's rough to I think a lot of people are going to start like obviously happening now, you know, the uh, Jeremy Pivens of the world. But like, I think coming out of COVID, there's going to be stars that like have just been sitting around with people telling them they'd be like, you should do stand up. I just great. Did you see? I just saw a quote from Kevin Spacey. I don't know. Was that that a real? I don't know if it's a real quote, but I saw it on Twitter. So I I, if it was real, it's (laughs) fucking devastating. Yeah, but Kevin Spacey. I don't know if you heard this, Dave. Uh, Kevin Spacey's about to be in a new movie, like an Italian movie, and he he's playing a detective investigating, uh, like a pedophile. And isn't Roman Polanski involved? Like, isn't Rome, Roman Polanski directing it? It's I think not, I read that. I could be wrong. No, no, no. I it's, think it's, it's, was it Woody Allen directing? <laughs> or he wrote? It's, it's some. It's some actress's Italian director husband. Okay. But they asked him why he was returning to acting. 
and he said, well, it was either this or stand-up. Uh, he does impressions. He does. Yeah. Yeah. He does impressions. Yeah, did you ever see him do the, uh, it was like Jack Lemon auditioning for Star Wars? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And he does that. Oh, it's a very unique impression. I've never seen it done before. Um, he was doing Christopher Walken. What? what? Yeah. Have you ever seen that one? Wait, Christopher Walken, the actor. Yeah. He was making his voice sound like his. Yeah. It was like, I was like, I've never would have, I've never seen this. Like, it was just so wow. unique and original. That is kind of groundbreaking. I want to see him yeah. do stand up now. If he can mm-hmm. do that, if he's got that in his arsenal. I, re- I don't even know if people would know who Christopher Walken was though. Like if he's like, Oh look, I'm going to do this voice. And they're like, yeah, that sounds like somebody it's like, Oh, it's, I think it's that actor, that mm-hmm. one, that one actor from that movie. And then, um, yeah, I, but people would, I think people would be kind of astounded. They're like, Oh my God, he sounds just like that actor, Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. Wow. I want to see, I want to see, I want to feature with Kevin Spacey now. <laughs> We're <laughs> laughing, but you probably will be. Honestly, and then know, I'll be like, happen. "How'd you like, get that? How'd you get Kevin Spacey?" Yeah. Uh, well, I think we've covered it all today. <laughs> I think we did. I think, I think we did an excellent job. Did he own his own masters? I think. Yeah, Kevin Spacey. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I think that was actually part of the problem. So I, so stacks like kind of went under the, i read some like they found out that all the the recordings were owned by atlantic, atlantic. Or so they like had that. they had a distribution deal with atlantic and then otis dies he's their biggest star and they were already having some prop like there was already money trop money problems before otis died and they were um motown was starting to like Although 67, yeah, I guess Motown was, Motown was already like a, a pretty huge deal. And, yeah. and look, it wasn't, it was a pretty one sided competition at that point. And then they found out months after his death that through some tech, technicality, Atlantic owned everything and they couldn't even like do reissues and, and make money on that. And they ended up having to, uh, they ended up, the brother and sister ended up selling the uh, record label and then um they've there have been different incarnations of stacks where it's like somebody will come in and buy it and then reissue a bunch of stuff um but now there was even the, the second owner was releasing comedy albums on there which i just found out like they had richard pryor and uh, bill cosby kevin, kevin spacey kevin spacey mm-hmm. mom's mabley um, but yeah, so stacks never, they, they never fully recovered from his death. It was like, he, he sort of, he sort of took them down with him. Yeah. Well, way to blame it on Otis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for pointing fingers, Ken. Yeah. Took them down with him. Hmm. Yeah. That's a Ugh. way to look at it. Yeah. You know? Well, listen, why would you was, why would you disparage the man's name at the end of this podcast? Because they told you. Him, saying, they, no, 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 yeah. no, no. Nobody's ever said that before. Ken, you're the mm-hmm. first person that's saying that Otis Red and ruining Stack Stacks Records. Yeah. I'm deep Apparently, apparently someone's it. grandfather had stock in Stacks Records. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the family hasn't forgiven it. To to be fair, technically, I think it was the pilot that ruined Stacks Records. <laughs> <laughs> wow. On that note, David, oh. do you have anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> um, 
Um, it's uh, actually, I was just thinking of how many people like when like the when the crash happened, like they're like right at the airport. And then I remember like when I used to like probation parole, so many people would complain about their DUI. There was like, I was two blocks away from home. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> when I got, when I got pulled over. Or, or like you, you, like, could you imagine like be like, cause it was probably, they were probably closer than four miles from the airport. Like, could you mm-hmm. imagine like waiting at that airport to take off and then seeing, like, I bet you could probably see it. You know, yeah. I, it was, yeah, I I don't, it was, it was a, sm- it was one of those small planes. I don't think it, it yeah. wasn't like a commercial airline. No, it, yeah, was it was like, like, I think it was the kind that like those, those, uh, Asian dudes jumped out of in Indiana Jones, like instead of just shooting in, in Temple of Doom. Are you thinking of a hot air balloon? No, you're thinking of a hot air balloon. I'm not. You remember the plane in Temple of Doom? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the pilots talk, jumped in Paris. about Pearl Harbor. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Maybe I'm thinking of Pearl Harbor. I think you're thinking Wait. of Pearl Harbor, the movie. No, I think you're thinking of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Where are the tunes and they, they dip the tunes in the dip and then they die. Is that is that what you're thinking of? That might, maybe that's it. Or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, mm-hmm. where they got zapped by the laser beam and then they were got they got really small. Or maybe you're thinking of The Last Starfighter. That was... Oh, with a video, that, with a video yeah. game? Mm-hmm. That might be it. Oh, you're thinking of the movie Mask. We're thinking of the movie Mask. There it is. There it is. And it all it it all comes back to one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I uh, have a podcast called the Ambiguously Black Duo. I'll be doing some comedy shows, and I'll be at Punchline Philadelphia on the eighth through the tenth of July. And I'll be posting other stuff in between all of these weeks. And um, I'm going to start recording some albums and uh, look for some small planes to to rent. (laughs) Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. I I think that's a great plan, David. I I support you in that. I would buy Mm -hmm. the tickets for you. I would like to buy you a plane ticket. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Ken, what do you uh, what do you got coming up? I have um, I I don't even know, and I'm too lazy to go looking for it. Oh, I have to I'll, ask you about something. Yeah. I'm going to talk about myself for a second while you look it up. Uh, I will be at the Punchline on uh, June second. Uh, it'll be my first live show back mm. after months and months. So I'll be at the Punchline, and then on June third, I'm going to be at. Uh, and this is what I want to talk to you about, Ken. I'm going to be performing outdoors at Soul Joel's Comedy Club Beach. Oh yeah, under the big dome. Uh, you were just there, right? What day is that? Yeah, in Royersford, Pennsylvania. It's June third. I'm gonna 3rd. I'm gonna come hang out for that. Okay, yeah, it's a fundraiser. I don't know what the fundraiser is for, but I'm doing it. You just did that recently, right? Yeah, I was just there with um, Adrian Iapolucci. Who did uh, our Millie former Vanilli. former guest of the show? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how was it? It's it's such a it's it's this like dome that he built. So it's like outdoor open air. It's it's, it's great. It's yeah. it's it's uh, the crowds there are always great. They're always packed. It's fun. Yeah, that'll be fun. I'm, I'll definitely yeah. come hang out for that. I have family okay. there, so I'll I'll bring people out too. Oh, great! Oh, that's great. Chip, did you say that was a Friday or a Thursday? I think it's a Thursday. It's a Thursday. Yeah. I just. Oh, I, you know, I think that's a fundraiser for Stax Records. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, it's a okay, fundraiser well, for Stax Records. We're going to be releasing this episode on June fourth. <laughs> we might be with the way I edit. 
<laughs> I uh I I don't know what I have come. I'm not I can't even find. I'm for, I'm forgetting to I know I have shit and it's just not in my calendar. I'll, well, I'll follow, tell the follow people Kenneth next week. At Ken Krantz comic. Yes, right? I have my new album. My new album will be out soon, probably next month. Okay. Nice. And uh follow at Rock and Roll Pod on Instagram and Twitter for all your uh updates. Oh, by the way, we should say thank you to Oh, it's ready. Point oh, by Osratic. Thank you, the the, uh, the master, the king of soul. Uh, which honestly is, is by the way, uh, I we talked about his music, but like I've always loved his music, and I went back in like the last two weeks and have really been listening to a lot. And it's just every song is good. Yeah. that he's done. Like it's just he was amazing, and it's just I I I, I used to listen to it constantly, and I, I, it's been a couple of years since I really got into it. And digging in this week, it's, it's been amazing. But if you it's, if you can also great. find footage to watch him live, it was like you can't take your eyes off the screen. It's and I, electric. It's it's crazy. And I do want to say I think it's fitting that this episode was a bit of a plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but I want to say thanks uh, last week to hopefully you listened to the, the Joe Bryath episode, which I think uh, is, is such an interesting one that we've done. And then last week we had on Kieran Turner, the uh, producer right, and director. director of the cre- creator of that uh, documentary. And he sent us two uh, vinyls of the Joe Bryath never released before uh, musical yes. tracks yeah. that I'm so excited to listen to. Yes. So, uh, I'm really excited to listen to that. Yeah. Oh, so you guys actually get stuff from people. I'm sorry for sabotaging your chances. I don't think we're getting any unreleased vinyl in the mail from the Otis writing camp anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> from the estates of Otis writing. I don't think you guys are getting anything. Uh, if you could send us two copies of Kidnapping Season by David James. There, I plugged it again. All right, David. Oh, thank you I so much. Hope you had fun. You should have plugged the leak in that plane. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> David. What? Sorry. David. One more to get in. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, on that I just note. wanted to make sure you guys definitely weren't getting anything from this radio state. <laughs> hey, whose tragic death can we make a mockery of next week? Hmm. Actually, here's the last question, a real quick. I'm trying to so he was 26. Is, what's the club? Is it 27? 27, club or you know what? I'm glad yeah, that you said that club. because I was thinking that today. I almost feel like if he had just hung on to 27, he would almost and I'm not even saying this to be funny because it's like everybody knows the 27 club and you can rattle off all the musicians. Mm-hmm. Hendrix, you know, like Joplin, Jim Kurt Morrison, Cobain, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, um Ken they, Krantz. Oh, fingers crossed. <laughs> I'm willing to go back in time to make it happen. If <laughs> I'm willing, I'm willing to have uh, Avengers Endgame. <laughs> so you have a time machine. You could kill baby Hitler, or baby Kenny. Go. <laughs> we all know the answer to that one. I know who baby Hitler would have picked. Um, all right. <laughs> On that note, if you're out there and you're listening from the Otis Writing Estate from the bottom of my heart, we're sorry. We actually are giant fans. Huge fans. I love them so much. Yeah. Actually, you know what? It wouldn't have mattered anyway. Like, no one ever believes that uh, Otis Redding was 26 or 27. <laughs> so, <laughs> he, yeah. he, he definitely looked 40 something. Yeah. 
All right, guys. Thank you so much. David James, thanks so much for uh, joining us uh, this week. And we hope to have you back sometime soon. Thanks for having me, fellas. We can talk about Young MC next time. Yeah. Yeah, we will. We could probably mm-hmm. get him. Yeah. <laughs> right. We could actually probably buy Young MC himself. <laughs> oh, anyway, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, David. <laughs> Goodbye.